2: miles from home, an American army is fighting for you.
1: To the end, that the high ideals for which America stands may
2: endure upon the earth.
0: I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler. Into this
2: revolutionary change, which may well be irretrievable,
1: I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people than the their side, and the whole feeling.
2: Hello and welcome to the Versailles Anniversary Project, The Conclusion. Welcome to our penultimate episode, history friends and patrons. Yes, I know I've said penultimate before, but let's just say I had a few thoughts I wanted to share on this project. So, if you are interested, check out the Versailles Retrospective I'll be releasing on the 10th of July. Otherwise, this episode will serve as the final word for everything we've seen and heard over the last eight months or so. What do we think about it? Have you listened to every episode or just some of the main events? Did you follow my advice and stick only with the On This Day episodes if you're pressed for time? Did you, like me, completely forget it even given that advice all the way back in November and listen to every episode anyway? Whatever way you've chosen to listen to this project, we've spent a lot of time together in this era. An era which generally receives about two sentences in your high school history book. And generally, those two sentences aren't exactly helpful reading something to the effect of, the First World War ended with the Treaty of Versailles, which then led to World War II. As we've learned during this project, the reality is much more complex, and in many respects, much less satisfying too. It would of course be nice to be able to make conclusive judgments in history to be able to note that A equals B, and therefore we can state without question what would or would not have happened without Versailles. As the historian David A. Andelman wrote though, in a book which I otherwise mostly disagree with, This idea is unfortunately flawed for those of us that like a nice, simple story. Andelman wrote, It's impossible to say with any certainty what might have happened if the world leaders gathered in Paris in 1919 had behaved or reacted differently. What if they had paid closer attention to the Nicholsons of the world? What if they had more carefully considered their every action, reined in their emotions, educated their colleagues back home and prepared their electorates as well? History is not a science, at least not in the conventional sense of the natural or physical sciences, where carefully controlled experiments with varying parameters can ascertain what outcome can be expected, and replicated again and again. History is not a science. If it was, the July Crisis Anniversary project wouldn't have required 29 episodes, and this project wouldn't have required 85 Okay, so maybe this didn't require 85 and I got a bit carried away, but you get my point. A story which contains an open and shut case doesn't need historians debating endlessly about it, coming up with different schools of thought or coming to different conclusions. If, when investigating a topic in history, you notice the appearance of all these things in the historiography, then that's a sure sign that the answer isn't a simple one. And yes, you are correct. Pretty much 98% of all debates in history contain a historiography's worth of different debates. But as Andelman said, that is why history isn't a science. If it was a science, then trust me, historians would look much more normal and have far fewer grey hairs. There's also something to be said for this ending to the whole project being just... just a little bit anticlimactic. Now maybe it's just me, but after all we've been through together... To end their era of the conference once the Treaty of Versailles is finished seems somehow unclean. Maybe it's the case that this podcast isn't capable of capturing the triumph which was genuinely felt in the Treaty of Versailles aftermath, or the relief that so many figures felt now that they'd get to return home. Maybe it's the fact that this was not the end of the story for any one of the Big Four or their subordinates, the latter of whom stayed behind to make the treaties, and the former continued in their political struggles. Orlando was long gone at this point, and we avoided introducing ourselves much to the new Italian government, but it wouldn't be long for this world either, as the mutilated victory, in addition to other concerns, moved Italians to accept something radical within a few years. Wilson, as we know, continued the struggle back home unsuccessfully. Clemenceau's political trajectory was a bit more straightforward, but he was less involved in the peace conference after the 28th of June and mostly resigned from politics once the presidential bid didn't go the way he wanted in early 1920. Lloyd George, perhaps alone among the peacemakers, returned to political normality after the 28th of June to focus his full attentions on the Irish War of Independence, which is what he's mostly known for in my country, as the man who divided Ireland between pro- and anti-treaty. So even with the signing of the Versailles Treaty, life went on for the Big Four, and some like Orlando would even make a political return after the Second World War. Still though, perhaps because we can't put a satisfying exclamation point on their actions, and perhaps because we know how ill-fated their laboriously won Treaty was in the end, the whole thing can seem a bit anticlimactic. Unfortunately, we're only here to cover this portion of the story, rather than what came afterwards and because we have to cut off the narrative here, the story feels somewhat unfinished. I think there's a lesson to be learned in that, though, because it shows how difficult it is to separate the interwar period, not just from the Treaty of Versailles, but also from the Paris Peace Conference and Great War which preceded it. We shouldn't, in other words, be examining these things in isolation. The sin which many historians or enthusiasts are guilty of is forgetting the context of the actors' actions and judging them as disconnected stories. It doesn't help that the mainstream version of the story encourages this approach, of course, but hopefully by the end of this conclusion episode, you'll feel more satisfied with the work we've done here, and with the story we've told. If we consider the bare facts on the ground, and the legacy of the conflict which had just passed, it is in many respects hardly surprising that the aftermath of the First World War should have been so calamitous. The conflict had brought an end to four empires and four imperial dynasties. Much is often said about these abdicating dynasties but even in Germany itself, in Bavaria with the Wittelsbach dynasty for instance, almost a thousand years of history came to an end. An epoch which was far too significant to do justice to in words and yet Bavarians were too distracted by the eruption of a far-left Bolshevik uprising to really be able to take stock and notice how significant, This passing of time really was. It granted legitimacy to new nation states which had always existed in the background, while it invented totally new states like Czechoslovakia and granted its blessing to new national projects like Yugoslavia. The victors talked and acted as though the world would follow their lead, when in reality they had few men to spare and soldiers were evacuating across the Channel and the Atlantic at a rapid rate. In the economic sphere as well as the military, problems resided. There would be no martial plan to resurrect European commerce and industry, only oceans of war debt which the British and French owed to the Americans. Indeed, far from possessing any interest in rebuilding Europe, many statesmen seemed more interested in taking the opportunity to seize what was believed to be rightfully theirs. Italians had been promised portions of the Balkans and Illyria in return for their abandonment of the Triple Alliance in 1915. Both Britain and France had designs on the territories which Germany would be forced to evacuate from in the colonial sphere, and the collapse of the Ottomans provided them with boundless opportunities to expand in the Middle East, to the extent that the British Empire grew to its greatest extent during the interwar years, as we know. The United States, while apparently detached from the petty business of empire building, had more than enough imperial interests of its own in the Pacific to contend with, though Wilson's professed aim was not the seizure of territory, but the fostering of a post-war new order that would stand the test of time. Wilson, much like his European peers, did not want to experience a conflict like the Great War ever again. On this, at least, all of the peacemakers were in agreement. This indeed was the overwhelming goal of all of the victors. Historians are unanimous that never had a single goal in policy been so unanimously subscribed to as that which said, We don't want to fight a war like this ever again. This is why, to me, the Great War and Peace Conference represent such protracted tragedies. We almost want to reach into the narrative and say, don't bother, you'll be back at it again in a generation. The whole effort at making peace, at imagining this world forum in Paris where for six months the world would convene in the name of ending war forever, seems now to be an exercise in complete futility. Indeed, one could be forgiven for asking, since the two decades of peace were themselves shaky and the tenets of the Treaty of Versailles ultimately ignored, what was even the point in investigating the period where the Allies believed the future of Europe would be set down? I can't answer that question for you, but in my view, the Paris Peace Conference reminds us that the quest for peace had not been abandoned, traumatised by war in 1919 the Allies worked to craft a new world order which, while predictably imperfect, would at least save them from repeating the catastrophe of before and save the lives of their citizens. In addition to the lack of relative power, the Peace Conference also lacked someone who could effectively blow hot air, such as a Talleyrand-like figure, manipulating the divisions of the Allies to acquire some tasty nuggets for France in 1815. Instead, it contained figures like the Italian Premier Vittorio Orlando, who was deeply anxious about acquiring what Italians believed to be their just deserts. If he failed, Orlando feared he would be replaced, or that revolution would overtake his country. His fears proved justified, of course. Orlando's ministry wouldn't survive the Versailles negotiations. He also faced challenges in the democratic sphere, which Talleyrand could not even have conceived of in 1815. But Orlando was not the only one to face such pressures. Lloyd George had made use of the Cahy election in mid-December 1918 to promise the British electorate the moon. While there was never much doubt as to what the British would choose since Lloyd George's coalition effectively dominated British politics, the wily Welshman still felt the need to promise to the British people that he would demand a high price from Germany for peace. Lloyd George eventually came to accept that such demands were counterproductive yet he had felt compelled to make the promise in the first place to demonstrate to the British people that their struggle and their sacrifices hadn't been in vain. Reparations, as we have seen, were fashioned on the understanding that the public expected a large bill to be handed to the Germans. If expectations had been set low from the beginning, then the misleading figure of 132 billion marks would never have materialised, and neither would the inaccurate but understandable literature which followed. In France, too, Clemenceau had led the French government in the twilight period of the war, when the spirits of defeat and victory haunted the French camp on various occasions. The highs and lows of the French war experience, and the debilitating losses which the country suffered, and never truly recovered from, forced Clemenceau to drive a hard bargain, both because he wanted to vindicate the suffering of his country, and because he genuinely believed that France deserved to be repaid for this experience. Since 1871 she had been isolated, humiliated and disadvantaged. Now with her enemy laid low, Clemenceau was determined France should not merely be protected but that she should return to a bygone era before the unification of Germany when French power was the preeminent power of the continent. For this to happen and for this state of affairs to be guaranteed, if Germany could not be dismembered then she could certainly be surrounded, isolated and saddled with a crippling war debt. This, as Clemenceau correctly asserted, was nothing less than what Germany had inflicted upon France in 1871. The difference, as Clemenceau failed to appreciate at the time, was that the First World War was incomparable to any other conflict of any other era. A harsh peace would not sideline Germany, as France had been sidelined, it would instead invigorate and motivate her people to seek justice, and pave the way for a leader tasked with seeking this justice, no matter the cost, at the ultimate expense of Clemenceau's beloved homeland. Of course, it also has to be said that the situation in Germany, Clemenceau recognised this to his credit, was by no means as desperate as historians have later claimed. Germany was not protracted and suffering at the feet of the Allies. While she was forced to sign the peace treaty, of course, she was certainly not devastated and destroyed for a generation. The fact that the Germans were able to recover sufficiently within two decades to defeat France in 1940 should tell us all we need to know. Too often, of course, that image of France being defeated and invaded and humiliated in 1940 is used to somehow justify the point of view that France was too harsh on Germany in 1919, rather than the other side of the story, which is that Clemenceau was right to fear Germany in the first place. The motives of Woodrow Wilson were less straightforward, but certainly more striking than any of his peers. While the US President would consistently be reminded that America could not understand what the Europeans were dealing with since she had not suffered so many casualties as her peers, no one could claim that manpower losses alone justified one seat at the great power table. If manpower losses were the only criteria, then Russia rather than the United States would be seated at Versailles. No, as Wilson and everyone else well understood, Versailles would contain the great powers, and these powers were made great by their might and influence, measured in military and economic capacity. Wilson was mindful of the debts owed by Britain and France to his country, but he was also painfully aware of the cataclysm which had engulfed Europe over the last four years, even if he had worked during the majority of these years to avoid any involvement within it. Furthermore, speaking of having to answer to one's home populations, Woodrow Wilson's Democrats had lost their majority in the Senate, to the Republicans in the ill-timed elections of November 5th, 1918. These elections, coming less than a week before the armistice was signed, are often completely forgotten in the narrative of the mission to end the Great War. As we have seen though, this early defeat for Wilson represented not a one-off setback, but a sign of things to come. While he would forge ahead regardless, neither Wilson nor his European peers were under any illusions about the stability of the American President's vision. If it was going to stand the test of time, the President would have to work very, very hard, both at home and abroad. This ultimately proved a bridge too far, either for Wilson or his political opponents in Congress. Analyzing Germany's winding experience of the immediate post-war order has been an interesting exercise indeed, because it's rarely a story we get to hear or properly absorb. Lessons learned by the Freikorps, for instance, during the spring and summer of 1919 when they were pretty much on a tear, and the swing to the far right, which many in the Freikorps favoured, had monumental consequences for the future of Germany. Many future Nazis, we have learned, cut their teeth in the Freikorps organisation, and once Bavaria shed its Bolsheviks, it swung to the right in a reaction, and it became the most right-wing and conservative portion of the Weimar Republic. This was the perfect place, some believed, to stage a push, but failing that mission, the establishment of a supposedly new party would suffice. So, in history, the answers can rarely be simple, but what answers are we even looking for? Well, to recap, our three aims as presented in the second introduction episode back in November 2018 were as follows. First, to provide the best narrative of the journey from Armistice to Treaty of Versailles, available in audio form. Second, to examine whether the treaty has been wrongfully maligned by historians or laymen or others. Third, and in line with this, to ascertain whether it is truly fair to blame Versailles for everything vile that the 20th century produced, particularly the Second World War. In case you were wondering, yes, I did have to check out the script for that introduction episode to remind myself of the actual aims of this project, but like a good student, I've related back to the question in my introduction, so I'm hoping for top marks. So what's the damage, and what can we say about our aims now? Well, as far as the first aim goes, I think you'll agree that we provided a narrative journey of the Peacemakers from Armistice to Versailles, and because this is the only chronological narrative of such a journey, available in podcast form, it is by default the best, so we win that aim. To our second aim, we asked whether the Treaty of Versailles has been wrongly maligned by historians, laymen and others. I think it is fair to say that we've uncovered sufficient evidence that it is, even down to the fact that much of the criticism directed towards the Treaty, like reparations or war guilt or unfairly punishing Germany, have been based on sand. Our revisionist take on these ideas parted the work of historians who have worked so diligently to revise these impressions, and during the last 40 or so years a treasure trove of source material has sprung up as a result, complete with digitised access to primary source material, like the actual minutes of the meetings of the Council of Four, which really gives us the extra edge as a historical podcast. I think it'd be fair to argue that since I accessed much of the primary source material for free, we have never had it so easy when it comes to unwrapping what Versailles actually means. It is my hope that in the next generation or so, the impressions about Versailles will die a death, smothered by the weight of logic and more sensible arguments. And yet, old misconceptions die hard. After all, people are still walking around thinking that Napoleon was really short, and historians have been hoping for the world to change its impressions of Versailles since the 1930s, while historians in 1919 provided analyses of their own even before the conference had ended. When Mark Trachtenberg wrote for the Journal of Modern History in 1979, Sixty years after the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, he was able to present a remarkable sweep of historical opinion which had emerged over the preceding six decades, beginning with the 10th anniversary of the Treaty in 1929. Trachtenberg wrote, In his article, Ten Years of Peace Conference History, which appeared in this journal in 1929, Robert Bingley attacked as simplistic those accounts which depicted the Conference as a struggle between heroes and villains. Binkley was convinced, however, that with time the moralistic tinge would fade from the historiography of the peace settlement and a more sophisticated understanding of the period would take shape. Over half a century has now passed since the Treaty of Versailles was signed, but in essentials, the original picture that Binkley condemned remains intact. The conference is still almost universally portrayed as a struggle between the forces of light and forces of darkness, or between the forces of movement and the forces of order. In terms of national policies, the struggle is usually represented as a conflict between America, moderate and conciliatory, and France, anxious for a crushing Carthaginian peace. Trachtenberg's words, as you just heard them here, are now 40 years old, but the themes which he captured remain relevant and important. Robert Binkley's criticism from 90 years ago in 1929 also remains relevant, too, and his belief that the moralistic tinge would soon retreat from all discourse regarding the Treaty of Versailles has proved impossible, and to be honest, it probably always will be impossible. The reason for this, in my view, is that just as much as we love simple explanations, we also love stories containing straightforward examples of morality. We don't like having to decide for ourselves who is good or who is bad. And the story works best and is most popular when we can easily vouch for the good guy. Triumphing over the bad guy. Why do we think the Second World War has spawned more literature than any other historical event? Hint hint, it's not because of Hitler's moustache, but because Hitler represents evil embodied in human form, and the Nazis were his subordinates, set against the forces of good which eventually triumph. It's a great story, but it is generally rare in human history that such a clear-cut instance of good versus evil exists. Why is that? Well, it's because human beings are normally not so straightforwardly evil as Hitler certainly was. They exist, we all exist, within shades of grey, doing good things and occasionally slipping up. Apply this to statesmen who sought generally to be good men, but occasionally made terrible errors or committed atrocious sins, only to return to their families and play lovingly with their children as though it never happened. The straightforward evil of Hitler rarely appears in other human beings. Thankfully, of course, we need to prefix this by saying that's a good thing, but the problem is that the morality tale is so appealing and captivating that without even realising it, we tend to apply the model of good guy versus bad guy to the history that we absorb. Seen in the cold light of day, rather than as a lesson in morality, the Treaty of Versailles is much more effective. It also has to be said that if we refrain from assigning good or bad monarchs to the Actors involved, we are far more likely to give them a fair shake when it comes to judging their conduct. And this brings me to aim number three. Can we blame the Treaty of Versailles for everything vile and terrible that happened in the twentieth century? It would certainly be useful if we could. If the Great War had not happened, if the Treaty of Versailles had not been made, our world would certainly be different, but whether it would be better is impossible to say. As horrendous as the consequences of the Great War were, it is debatable that they would have been avoided without the Treaty of Versailles. As Sally Marks wrote, Much has been written about what the Allies should have done in 1919, especially from the German viewpoint, though often not by Germans, usually advocating steps that would have increased Germany's continental dominance and often would have been politically impossible. Counterfactual history is not profitable here. More insight is gained by examining what the Allies did and did not do, as well as the consequences thereof. Counterfactual, or alternative history as we would know it, while it is enjoyable, of course, it won't help us answer that third aim we have, and it won't help us get to the bottom of that question of the treaty's responsibility. You won't be surprised to learn by this point that I don't buy into the notion that Versailles was responsible for everything terrible that followed it, because in many respects, it just doesn't make sense. The Treaty of Versailles didn't command Hitler to initiate the Holocaust, the Treaty of Versailles didn't tell the Americans and Soviets to start the Cold War. The Treaty of Versailles didn't ask the Wall Street crash to occur. The Treaty of Versailles didn't demand that the Nazis make a 2nd their reason for being for the moment they acquired power in 1933. By heaping the blame for all these things on the shoulders of a 200-page document, we seriously compromise our ability to think rationally. And what even was the Treaty of Versailles? At its core, when we strip everything back, the Treaty of Versailles was a peace treaty which the Germans were profoundly unhappy with. And why were they unhappy with it? Because it represented their defeat in military, political and economic terms. It provided for reductions in their territory. It committed Germans to remembering that they had fought a war and lost. It erected new states which contained peoples whose right to self-rule the Germans never recognised and mostly resented. If we blame the Treaty of Versailles for everything that followed, you see, we ignore the central culpability of the German people for what followed. And German responsibility for the Second World War cannot be in doubt. Without even realizing it, perhaps, we excuse an awful lot of German guilt if we simply allude to the Treaty of Versailles as the German justification for their actions. Without even realizing it, we've probably been tricked by this formula, because in the 1930s, Hitler was able to get away with so much because the unjust Treaty of Versailles required correction. There was no question that it was the German character rather than the treaty which required correction instead. No, it seemed somehow easier for the Allies to let Hitler away with it, because everyone knew Versailles was flawed, and he was only fixing its mistakes. This attitude seems almost suicidal now, as the Allies allowed Hitler to roll over their principles and appeasement took root. Yet, the curious thing is that even though we know Hitler was fundamentally wrong in what he did, it is all too easy to find people that reckon, like Hitler and his cabal did, that the Treaty of Versailles was wrong. And even while these people would never ever dream of saying that Hitler was justified, the contradictions are certainly awkward. I already knew that answer when I put that third aim forward, but I wanted to provide the evidence in this project first, for my benefit as much as for yours. We know that the Treaty of Versailles contained more than enough optimistic, hopeful articles, like recreating new states in Eastern Europe, in places like Poland and Bohemia, which had longed for self-determination for years. Or the League of Nations, an idea which would prove doomed, but not necessarily because a supranational organisation based in collective security was an inherently bad idea, as the reimagining of the League as the United Nations proved. Rather than blame Versailles for everything vile that followed it, we should be blaming those vile people. Nobody would try to argue, unless you find yourself lost in some very dark places in the web, that Hitler was excused for what he did. Hitler was a vile person. His followers were vile, his soldiers were vile, his ideology was vile, and he sponsored vile and terrible things. After ridding himself of the window dressing of rectifying the Treaty of Versailles, in any case, Hitler quickly revealed his true colours, and these colours consisted of a horrendously aggressive policy, powered by racial Darwinism and extremist genocidal rhetoric. Operation Barbarossa was not planned with the Treaty of Versailles in mind, nor was the decision to declare war on the United States, nor was Mussolini's poison gas-filled invasion of Ethiopia in the years before all that. These men acted in the way that they did because ambition, ideology and other terrible traits drove them on, and people followed them for a whole range of reasons. To argue that a treaty played a fundamental role in this process is to seriously reduce, whether we realise it or not, their central responsibility for what happened. I was just following orders, is the infamous defence which we are handed down. Not, well, I really didn't like the Treaty of Versailles, so to be honest, I felt kind of justified. Again, at its core, the Treaty of Versailles was a peace treaty which the German people did not like, and it was added to the ledger in their quest for revenge. Yet the Nazis would never have seen the light of day in Germany if the Wall Street crash had not occurred and this nowhere moves people to excuse the Nazis by saying that the Wall Street Crash made them do it. Obviously, we're taking extreme examples here, but the argument inferred is extreme, and the automatic connection we make from First World War to Second, with the Treaty of Versailles providing the glue, really needs to end. Peace treaties which were viewed as unfair in the past thousands of years of human history never received blame for the calamities that followed. So don't you think it's odd that Versailles seems to be alone in the camp? But that's not right, Zach. They're very different situations, and around the time the Nazis came to power, Europe was dealing with much different issues than it had dealt with before. Exactly, history friend. This is true. So why don't we focus on these issues instead, and why don't we take our focus off that supposed skeleton key of the Treaty of Versailles, and try to find another key for the metaphorical door of historical truth? While Sally Marks did say that counterfactual history is unhelpful, consider history without the Treaty of Versailles and try to imagine what would have happened next. You still would have needed some kind of peace treaty and it still could not have satisfied everyone. Remember, the greatest objections to the Treaty of Versailles wasn't necessarily its contents, but the publication of a military defeat, which the Germans were increasingly being told not to believe in. Before the treaty had even been made and German soldiers were returning home, President Ebert was insisting that nobody had defeated these soldiers and they were setting up misconceptions which would later be hijacked by the Nazis. The misconception gained so much credence and acceptance because it was what people wanted to hear. To those utterly contemptible individuals like Ludendorff and Hindenburg who knew full well that Germany had been defeated and had asked for a negotiated peace because of it, the simple truth is that they lied for political reasons and also to make themselves feel better. Rather than face the truth, millions of Germans, be they high-up statesmen, Freikorps units or civilians, swallowed this narrative because it absolved them of responsibility. A nation, which was not defeated after all, should not have to pay. Again, this stabbed-in-the-back mythos is often intertwined with the Treaty of Versailles, but rarely is it properly, definitively stated that the one compromised the other. This mythos would have emerged whatever treaty the Allies created, and the more lenient the peace, the more the belief in Germany's strength, and therefore her undefeated nature, would have been reinforced. In many respects, it was a lose-lose situation for the Allies. Perhaps the only way that peace could have been guaranteed was to engage in Ulrich von Brockdorff-Rantzau's plan for resistance, which would have occasioned an Allied invasion of Germany, the likes of which had never before been seen. Of course, that invasion would have brought with it its own problems. And remember, it wasn't up to the Allies to tell the Germans they were defeated. This, to the Allies, was a clearly established fact. Again, we absolve the German leaders of too much responsibility if we keep on passing the book to the Allies so willingly. The Germans had fought, and they had lost, and now it was required to pay the penalty, however humiliating, by coming clean and suppressing those false views which placed this policy in danger. That the Germans did not have the stomach for this process was their fault, not the fault of the Allies. But as Marx also said, what about what the Allies did or did not do? Can we criticise them for what was wrong with the Treaty of Versailles? Well, sure we can, and if you thought I was some kind of Treaty of Versailles fanboy, you've got another thing coming. For starters, remember back in the day when everyone thought it was only a preliminary conference and that the Germans would have a role in the final conference? At times, one could be forgiven for thinking that the Allies couldn't make up their minds on what they actually wanted. What form was the conference supposed to take? Could it be said that the finished product adopted any kind of form at all? How many other peace conferences dragged on for six months, with barely a whisper of the defeated party? Comparisons to previous peacemaking exercises, like the Congress of Vienna, are telling. But then this was a different time, Versailles also contained far fewer ballroom dances than its 1815 counterpart, even if the formula, which said the defeated French had to be present, was relatively clear in 1815. While the commissioners on small fry worked behind the scenes, many of the big hitters returned home in February of 1919 to sort out domestic matters, and Clemenceau was then laid low by an assassination attempt, with the result being that the second half of February was essentially piloted by no captains. This proved a blessing in many respects, though, and once the leaders returned, they found that the Council of Ten had been working hard. As they settled back into the swing of things, two things became... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we
0: decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: Clear first, that a smaller council containing only the actual leaders would speed up decisions, and second, maybe Woodrow Wilson should have stayed in America. The president had already gotten his League of Nations covenant mostly hammered out with its draft form on the fourteenth of February, and House seemed more than willing to motor on without him. Having introduced himself to its processes, he now had a great excuse to remain in Washington, and as Marx put it issue thunderbolts from afar. But Wilson did not stay behind in Washington. Before long, then, Wilson was just another peacemaker, overwhelmed by the quagmire of activity before him. And what a quagmire it was! Considering Wilson's preference for a smaller council, he didn't make any real effort to streamline or organise the negotiation or decision-making structure of the Council of Four. That task was down to the unsung hero of this peace process, Sir Maurice Hankey, who single-handedly rescued the body from empty conversations and embarrassingly disorganised sessions. Hankey took the minutes, brought the necessary papers, and even prepped the smaller nations who were due to address these four men. Yet, while he was a vital instrument, Hankey was not a miracle worker. He was unable to force the Big Four to keep to a structure or to apply some rhyme and reason to their debates. Plans were rarely, if ever made, for the following week. Instead, the four hopped from topic to topic on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, with conversations taking them to places as varied as Luxembourg, Japan and Poland in a single meeting. It was a wonder they got anything done at all, but when the German terms were added bit by bit, it could not be ensured that, put together, they would all make sense. As we have said so many times, this disorganised, haphazard method ensured that nobody had read the 440 articles of the Treaty of Versailles as one. A truly incredible fact of the conference. And there was more to the conference than just these 440 articles, after all, as the historian Thomas Jones reminds us in his biography of Lloyd George, writing, The comprehensive term, conference, may be allowed to describe the 2,000 meetings, plenary and subsidiary, private and public, of some 60 commissioners and committees, ranging from 200 or 300 persons, to the diminishing councils of ten, 5, 4 and 3, all seeking peace and pursuing it. The Treaty of Versailles may be regarded as a myth in the sense that it became customary to debit to it most, if not all, the miseries which have befallen Europe since its imposition. There was, indeed, a great deal of misery on the ledger of the Treaty of Versailles and much of it seemed intertwined with the actions of the Big Three and other similarly unsuccessful statesmen. Of course, though, there was much that the Big Four couldn't do. They were trapped in a situation where pleasing everyone was impossible and where many expected them to right wrongs which dated back centuries and which often conflicted with other nations who wanted the exact same thing. Some, like Wilson, who had never negotiated settlements before, but who had a wealth of experience increasing the prestige of Princeton University, struggled to make himself heard and move past the impressions he gave off as a university professor or preacher attempting to spread the word. Wilson's style was not always effective, but he did bring with him the hopes and imaginations of so many individuals who saw the Peace Conference as the beginning of a new era which their president would secure. Not just style, but also knowledge was a hindrance. Imagine having to know, or at least have some idea, about the importance of national conflicts dating back centuries, which pushed apart select villages strewn across a border. David Lloyd George barely grasped the nuances of the Irish conflict which was soon to engulf his premiership, and yet he was required to grasp the significance of Techen for the Polish and Slovak camps. Clemenceau and Orlando, in their own way, navigated the perils of the conference as best as they could, but there was no question that each man was weaker in some areas than others. Orlando, for instance, was rarely present when exclusively German issues were discussed, and Clemenceau preferred to delegate all discussions on the League of Nations to Léon Bourgeois, his hated political rival. There were no living statesmen who could be consulted to give advice. Records of the Congress of Vienna were raided, but the Allies found that these provided more information on the quality of candles that were needed or on the frequency of dances than on any useful diplomatic approaches or on a proven method for working through contentious issues because of this even though the old example of the congress of vienna seemed to be staring them in the face the allies in 1919 pretty much had to just make things up as they went along each allied figure brought something to the table and each had its own strengths and weaknesses which were highlighted or obscured depending on the ability of his counterpart It is significant, though, that for every account criticising the shortcomings of one of the Big Four, one can find another source emphasising their strengths and providing a different perspective. It would not be said that any of the Big Four were fundamentally stupid. Not even the critics of Wilson could deny that the man was supremely intelligent, and interestingly, all of the Big Four, save for Clemenceau, had a background in law, while the French Premier preferred journalism and his father's profession as a physician. Interestingly again, Clemenceau was the only one of the big four to serve time in prison, 77 days in 1862, for urging activism against the regime of Napoleon Third. a fact which serves to remind us exactly how long Clemenceau's political career was. Someone who opined on the finished result was Edward House, a man who had been present in Paris since late October and who had no abundance of optimism when considering what had just been made. On the twenty ninth of June, as Paris emptied of its VIPs, House took the time to note the following, revealing retrospective in his diary. To those who are saying that the treaty is bad and should never have been made, and that it will involve Europe in infinite difficulties when it is sought to be enforced, I feel like admitting it. But I would also say in reply that empires cannot be shattered, and new states raised upon their ruins without disturbance. To create new boundaries is always to create new troubles. The one follows the other. While I would have preferred a different piece, I doubt whether it could have been made, for the ingredients for such a piece as I would have had were lacking in Paris. And even if those of us like Jan Smuts, Louis Botha, Lord Cecil and myself could have had our will, as much trouble might have followed a piece of our making as seems certain to follow this, the same forces that would have been at work in the making of this piece would have been at work to hinder the enforcement of a different kind of piece. And no one could say with certitude that anything better than has been done could be done at this time. We have had to deal with a situation pregnant with difficulties and one which could be met only by an unselfish and idealistic spirit which was almost wholly absent and which was too much to expect of men come together at such a time and for such a purpose. So, was that it? Was there nothing much that could be done for the conference or its treaty? Not so, House said as if contradicting himself, the President's former BFF, followed up the above diatribe with a short, nostalgic and certainly regretful note, saying, And yet, I wish we had taken the other road, even if it were less smooth, both now and afterward, than the one we took. We would at least have gone in the right direction, and if those who follow us made it impossible to go the full length of the journey planned, the responsibility would have rested with them and not with us. Here is one of the contemporaries of the Peace Conference and an active participant in crafting the final treaty arguing on the final page of his diary that, in fact, they should have done virtually everything differently and approached the treaty from a totally different angle. What can we make of this? Sally Marks has something to say about it because, in her mind, the mission to please was essentially impossible. And she explains why, writing, Unfortunately, There was no apparent satisfactory solution. Adhering fully to the wishes of any of the major actors would have brought its own problems. A fully Wilsonian or fully French peace have been deemed better options by those who have not thought through the implications of those or other possibilities. A treaty genuinely acceptable to the Weimar Republic, whose citizens expected a victor's share of the spoils or at least the reward of a generously treated neutral player, would have been impossible for the four and their electorates as well as for Poland and Belgium, and would have violated the 14 points. Germany would have rejected a fully Wilsonian version, entailing reparations and a loss of territory to Poland. A Lloyd-Georgian treaty might have satisfied Germans about Poland, but not on reparations, nor on the loss of colonies, navy and merchant marine. A fully French pact, though milder than propaganda suggests, could not be enforced, since France lacked the power to do so alone, and, while gaining Italy's vote, but not its army, would have been opposed by the Anglo-Saxons, hence the awkward bundle of compromises. From this, then, would it be fair to note that the Big Four were not completely to blame for what followed, and that there was much which was out of their hands? To an extent, yes, but if House's criticism is valid, we can also argue that there was a great deal that they comprehensively failed to do. For example, nobody seems to have realised at the time that by depriving Germany of its colonies and its navy, German strength would be wholly focused in Europe. Even Bismarck had realised that the best way to pacify the French was to give them some distractions and outlets for their national energies, and in the 1870s, colonies seemed the best such outlet in the circumstances. True, it would have been controversial to hand Germany back her colonies, but one could argue that a mandate system where the Germans retained some kind of control would not have cost the Allies anything, and would at least have satiated some of the anger in Germany. On the other hand, one could argue that Germany deserved to never set foot again in Africa after the genocides of the Herero and Nama peoples in East Africa during the first years of the 20th century. On the other hand, though, if you want to mention that, Europeans had been committing atrocities against the Africans for decades, exhibit Belgium. So was it really fair to expel one European power and not another? Although this debate is clearly controversial, it was never given much attention at the time, and it was taken for granted that Germany's colonies had to be stripped from her and handed over, essentially, to Britain, regardless of the optics of this policy. Wilson's approach to the balance of power is also frustrating, because it amounted to the President refusing to accept the existence of an idea which had been maintained for centuries. The President's refusal to accept it did not mean that it failed to exist all of a sudden or that it would be replaced by the League of Nations as he planned. Habits and policies could not be expected to change or vanish so suddenly and Wilson ought to have engaged more with this idea, especially since the Europeans remained ruled by the balance of power. By failing to discuss it, Wilson failed to add America's weight to the debate and offered nothing concrete to replace it, save for a League which was not at all sufficient for the task. And speaking of this power balance, there was no guidebook in place to prevent Germany from dominating said balance. Much has been said about Germany's armed forces, and the onus was upon her to pay for her sins, but nothing was said about what would be done in the future if a new war broke out. Nobody imagined that after establishing itself as a supremely powerful force in Europe, with spheres of influence all around itself, that Germany would potentially dominate its smaller neighbours in the east in particular Nobody seems to have expected that since Germany would have scores to settle with these new states, above all Poland and Czechoslovakia, that some kind of united strategy was required to combat them. Instead, the most that was done was a commitment to bring new states into the League of Nations, and Clemenceau powered ahead with agreements forged between France and these new states, which amounted to a version 2.0 of the Franco-Russian Entente and the principle of surrounding Germany on two sides. And speaking of Russia, there seemed to be a strange approach setting in towards that power, where the Allies did not possess enough power to properly engage with her, but did not want to ignore that theatre altogether. As a result, it was inferred that Germany would stand in Bolshevik Russia's way, yet to do this, Germany could not be completely neutered in her defence. This posed problems for Allied strategic visions into the future, but it also provided the Weimar government with valuable ammunition. Once the approaches to Russia misfired, Germans simply had to emphasize their vulnerability to Bolshevism, highlighted during the Berlin and Munich troubles, to arouse concern in Allied circles. What if Germany fell to Bolshevism? Wouldn't the West be next? Rather than allowing these visions to fester, the Allies should have nipped the situation in the bud early by paying due attention to the balance of power in the East, setting in place ironclad agreements with the new states that had emerged and then insulating it all with the League of Nations if they really felt they had to. Of course, to make such explicit recognition of the balance of power possible, Wilson would have to compromise on his ideology, which in this case, he could not do. And there it is again, a point we've come back to several times before, the selective compromising of the American president in particular, which made so much friction between the Big Four possible, and which significantly reduced their effectiveness. Had Wilson informed himself of the Italian position, and had he actually come to terms with the necessity of handing Fiume over, for instance, then the Treaty of Versailles could well have been signed in May or even April, and what was more, the Japanese would never have been in a position to exploit Allied divisions and seize vast swathes of China. Such counterfactuals cannot be proved, of course, and hindsight is twenty-twenty. but at a certain point, we do have to question the wisdom of Allied neglect. How did they not realise that with the Habsburg, Tsarist and Hohenzollern empires defeated, the Weimar Republic would shortly fill that power vacuum? How did they not realise that France would be left alone to combat this, and that France was in no sense up to the task after such a mortal blow to her status as a great power, which she would never recover from again? Perhaps we can chalk this latter point down to Clemenceau's ability to talk a big game, but the realists in the Allied camp should still have thought more carefully about the future than they did. And talking a big game may be useful, but it also reminds us of that critical difference between the First and Second World Wars. No, I'm not talking about a lack of ferocious ideologies or genocide, because we know by now that these were held within the palm of the Great War in spades. I'm talking instead about a more problematic difference when attempting to remake the world, that being the absence of any power strong enough to police either side or impose any meaningful compromise. The victorious allies were indeed strong enough to intervene in several related conflicts, most notably in the Russian Civil War, and they were strong enough to offer naval support to the Greek Premier as we have seen while Venizelos plotted his Greek landing at Smyrna. The big three were strong for sure, but they were not strong enough to win the peace, and in the circumstances they had little choice other than to compromise, as Sally Marks wrote. The treaty is often termed a bundle of compromises. How could it be otherwise? Given French fears, Italian avidity, Lloyd George's moves from rigour to the middle ground and often toward the supposedly weaker German side and Wilson's alternation between sternness and leniency, it could hardly be anything else. Besides, the Big Four had to reach agreement somehow. Those who complained that Lloyd George did not gain Germany easier terms, that Wilson failed or that Clemenceau obtained too little forget that none of them had unilateral powers of decision. To avoid irreparable schism and achieve a treaty, mutual concessions were essential. Hence, the consequence was an unsatisfactory middle path in the realm of the feasible, with fairly moderate truncations and constraints, despite propaganda to the contrary. The resulting text was too gentle to resist Germany for long, but severe enough to enrage it permanently, creating a potentially explosive situation, frightening France and Weimar's new, weak neighbours. A problem with the approach of the Big Three was that the victor's peace was created with none of the mechanisms required to make the enforcement of its terms actually possible. Aside from the territorial clauses, which of course could only be settled in war, there was no way, for instance, to compel German adherence to the reparations terms. As a result, throughout the 1920s it's often forgotten that the French were moved to tear their hair out as the Germans hummed and hawed about their obligations and the German governments refused to countenance a speedy payment of the debt so long as it would cost them political capital and no penalties would ensue. Those penalties which did follow, such as the occupation of the Ruhr between 1923-25, to 25, actually benefited the Germans and caused the French to be vilified even though France was the only member of the Big Four still willing to enforce the terms of the recent treaty. By that time, of course, propaganda regarding the treaty's inherent badness had leaked across the Channel and British politicians and citizens became gradually convinced that Germany had been wronged. These beliefs, we will note, never came accompanied by the suggestions over how a defeated enemy power might be righted without wronging her neighbours or Britain's former allies. The situation was confused, subsumed in a kind of regretful rhetoric, and aggravated by impressions of French aggression and strength, when in reality, successive French governments were moved to wallow in the despair of their weakness. Oddly, these events became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The reparations terms had failed because they had been unfair. Germany had moved against them because they had been unsustainable. Britain had been right to stand aside because these terms were unrealistic. I mean, have you read John Maynard Keynes? Just look at that figure of $132 How could anyone have realistically paid that bill and stayed afloat? You can all see the obvious problems with this. So to untrained eyes, the economic clauses were unnecessary, and France with her aggressive policy was making a fool out of itself. Scant attention has been paid to the genuine crisis in place in French security conceptions in 1919, exacerbated, Lloyd George's strange decision to turn against the French in early June, culminating in his rejection of the Rhineland military occupation around the same time. Even before that point, Clemenceau had been forced to select a much more watered-down version of the Rhineland plan than he had wanted, but he was placated by the plan to militarily guarantee France, a guarantee which Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson promised to respect. Clemenceau knew better, and contrary to Lloyd George's urgings, he did not give up on the Rhineland occupation. It was a good thing he did not, as the promised guarantee never materialised, moving Clemenceau and his successors to work desperately to find some means of replacing it. Having only gained Alsace-Lorraine in the war, the Rhineland, attached to Prussia only since 1871, was a small price to pay, But even that was unacceptable to Lloyd George, who reasoned that it would inflame German opinion to take German territory. All the while, of course, don't forget, Lloyd George was placing Germany's colonies quietly in his back pocket. The hypocrisy was as blatant as it was damaging, as Marx observed. Clemenceau and his successors knew France had not won the war, but had held on by its fingernails until rescue arrived. They also knew Germany was economically and demographically stronger, still next door, and potentially more powerful militarily once the bonds of Versailles expired or were broken. Thus, post-war French foreign policy, while consistently misread, was driven by fear. There was no need to fear, proclaimed Woodrow Wilson, who, unlike Lloyd George, did not attempt to oppose Clemenceau's security policy from the perspective of what the Germans would pay, but because it would be obsolete once the League of Nations was created. This was not just the belief of Wilson, but also of House, who saw in the League a rescue for threatened states and insurance against a repeat of the disaster. If, after establishing the League, House remarked to Clemenceau, we are so stupid as to let Germany train and arm a large army and again become a menace to the world, we would deserve the fate which such folly would bring us. Little did House realise that neither he nor the United States would be around to face the consequences of this folly, whereas France would be on the front line, as she had been twice already in Clemenceau's lifetime. Wilson proved catastrophically mistaken in his belief of the triumph of the League, with America leading the charge. So bleak did the prospects for American membership in the League and Congressional approval of the Treaty of Versailles seem that a curious last-ditch effort was launched in the autumn of 1919 by the British. In a forgotten journey, a relic of the past, a man seemingly from an era ago, was sent from London to Washington to try and impress upon the American people and body politic the importance of making good the President's commitment. In the British view at the time, a good mediator was all that was needed to reconcile the three camps in America of irreconcilables, non-committed senators, and those reservationists like Henry Cabot Lodge, who all had problems with the League of Nations. The problem was, Wilson was not in the humour to compromise, and having nabbed the treaty from Versailles, he was determined to resist all efforts to adjust it. But who was the man that the British sent in autumn 1919? It was none other than the former Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, now a viscount and President of the League of Nations Union in Britain. Other items recommended Gray for this task as well. He was well known and respected by Wilson, he was a good friend of House, and the latter even recommended that he take up the position as Special Ambassador to the United States, which he accepted in August 1919. Viscount Gray, who was rapidly losing his eyesight, believed emphatically in the power of the League to prevent another war, and after having presided over Britain's entry into the recent conflict, perhaps sensed that he had a duty to go to America and proved to Wilson and his opponents that Britain wanted to be America's friend under the guise of the League of Nations. Unfortunately, Grey was to arrive in the United States in late September, just as news of Wilson's collapse was publicised. This development occasioned serious difficulties which Grey was never truly able to overcome, and he remarked prophetically upon his arrival in the country, What has happened once can never happen again, while other nations have equally shown idealism It is upon the United States that history will focus hope in the future. But the opponents of the League were unmoved, and a nearly blind Grey returned home the worse for wear in the new year of 1920, having accomplished next to nothing. Returning home, Sir Edward Grey briefly became leader of the Liberal Party before retiring from politics. Grey's prophetic warning of, what happened once, can happen again, ...was something he never lived to see pan out... ...but by the time of his death in September 1933... ...it was plain that the Nazi party intended to alter the post-war settlement. By that point in 1933, Wilson had been dead for nearly a decade. In the final instance when his voice was heard in public... ...Wilson agreed to make a speech over the radio in 1923... ...to mark the fifth anniversary of Armistice Day. Wilson, true to form, did not mince words about the international situation... His speech, beginning at 8.28pm and broadcast as far west as Denver, Colorado, was as follows. The anniversary of Armistice Day should stir us to great exultation of spirit because of the proud recollection that it was our day, a day above those early days of that never-to-be-forgotten November, which lifted the world to the high levels of vision and achievement upon which the Great War for Democracy and Right was fought and won. Although these stimulating memories of that happy time of triumph are forever marred and embittered for us by the shameful fact that when the history was won, won, be it remembered, chiefly by the indomitable spirit and ungrudging sacrifices of our incomparable soldiers, we turned our backs upon our associates and refused to bear any responsible part in the administration of the peace or the firm and permanent establishment of the results of the war, and we withdrew into a sullen and selfish isolation which is deeply ignoble because manifestly cowardly and dishonourable. This must always be a source of deep mortification for us, and we shall inevitably be forced, by the moral obligations of freedom and honour, to retrieve that fatal error and assume once more the role of courage, self-respect and helpfulness which every true American must wish to regard as our natural part in the affairs of the world. That we should have thus done a great wrong to civilization at one of the most critical turning points in the history of the world Is the more to be deplored because every anxious year that has followed has made the exceeding need for such services as we might have rendered more and more evident and more and more pressing, as demoralizing circumstances which we might have controlled have gone from bad to worse. And now, as if to furnish some sort of sinister climax, France and Italy, between them, have made waste paper of the Treaty of Versailles, and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world, can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to lead and make the right prevail. The speech doesn't quite end there, but I want to know if you recognise that last bit of the speech. You may notice that, for the first time since episode 50, I've actually included the longer introduction to this series the first time around, complete with all those extracts from different actors present at the time. I know you've probably heard that introduction 85 times at this stage and you probably are well used to skipping through it, but I want to turn your attention to one particularly grainy part of that intro collage, which I have received a lot of questions about in the past. Many of you suspected that this extract was Woodrow Wilson, but you couldn't quite make out what he said. Radio in 1923, unfortunately, is not what it is today. But I included this clip from 1923 because it was so incredible to have even an imperfect recording of such a pivotal figure's voice on this show. Let me just play that clip of his voice again. (laughs) Indeed, France, then vilified for having invaded the Ruhr, and Italy, vilified in addition for its standoffs with Greece and soon its occupation of portions of Albania, had made waste paper of the Treaty of Versailles, at least according to Wilson. Yet, as Wilson also makes plain in this extract, the occasion of America's isolation from Europe and its unfulfilled obligations to the Treaty was an even greater shame and one which would have disastrous consequences. Within a few months of this broadcast, Wilson would be dead, but before he died, he would have been made aware of the transfer of Fiume to Italy. The first territorial settlement of the Treaty of Versailles was thus violated, and as the former president and peacemaker so desperately feared, it was not destined to be the last such violation, but the first in a long line of many others. With America absent from the equation, it was down to the weakened France, unenthusiastic Britain, and distracted Italy to enforce Versailles, and this was predictably insufficient. In retrospect, as Sally Marks appreciated, the Versailles Treaty could only endure if one of three circumstances prevailed. If Germany genuinely accepted the treaty, which she didn't, if Germany were rendered too weak for effective resistance, which she wasn't, or if the treaty was firmly enforced by the collective action of at least the European victors. This, as we know, is the opposite of what happened. Thus, Marx noted, the treaty was progressively dismantled. Marx then provides her final, conclusive judgment on the situation, writing While the four imposed losses and constraints upon Germany, many of them temporary, they allowed it to remain Europe's greatest state politically, economically, and potentially militarily, for they never really faced jointly the extent of German power and the possibility of its hostile use. They can be faulted for the ostensible and psychological, as well as the real burdens they placed upon Weimar's Democrats, the insufficiency of enforcement clauses, ignoring the risks of imposing a victor's peace without any kind of unified will to enforce it, the treaty's numerous pinpricks but relative moderation on many key points, their necessary haste and unnecessary disorganisation, leaving Germany dominant on the continent. Indeed, when the bonds of Versailles dissolved, it left Germany more dominant than it had been before. Above all by the crucial combination of their failure to ensure that the Germans understood their military defeat, their consistent avoidance of the big questions, and their neglect of aspects of German power. The victors inadvertently provided the preconditions for what one Weimar official termed the continuation of war by other means. It was indeed the continuation of war by other means, until it wasn't, and the war was effectively resumed from the point where, many Germans had been led to believe, it had never conclusively ended in the first place. Notwithstanding how we feel about the shortcomings and flaws of the Big Four, or of the 440 articles which their 6 plus months of hard work spat out in the end, we have to accept that the mission of making everyone happy was impossible, and certainly the idea that they should have made Germany happy was fundamentally unwise. The Treaty of Versailles was a flawed document, critically flawed, devised by flawed men, with flawed impressions of the world within its articles. Because of this, it remains probably the most infamous treaty that ever was, and its authors have suffered for it. After all these years, though, I believe that the peacemakers have more than done their time. Now it is high time we moved on from those simplistic formulas, where A equals B or Versailles equals disaster. Let's get to grips instead with the actual problems that the peacemakers faced, the real stories behind their failures and successes, and the real reason why the Great War reverberated throughout the 20th century. Because by now it's fairly clear to me that we won't find the answers by beating the Treaty of Versailles over the head. Let's take a stand against the simplistic, against the reductionist, against the propaganda. While on the surface, this formula has long appeared easy to digest, in fact, it has proved a deadly hindrance to proper study and proper examination of the era as a whole. Indeed, the misconceptions surrounding the Treaty of Versailles have been choking history for far too long, and it's time they stopped getting away with it. A century on, there has never been a better time to break with these unfortunate traditions and put aside the convenient lies. We owe it to the peacemakers... The victims and to ourselves to put the actual history first. So that's it, history friends. That's the project with its conclusions all wrapped up and lessons hopefully learned. If you're still not satiated or you're curious about how I've been doing throughout the tenure of this project, then make sure and check out the Versailles retrospective episode due on the 10th of July. Otherwise, My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, The Conclusion. Thanks so much for listening to me and putting up with me over the last eight months, history friends. And I hope to see you in September for our next great adventure.